Hi, this is Megan McHugh, and this is the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website. G'day, welcome aboard the Starship Zero G, science fiction, fantasy and historical radio for episode number 1435, entitled Totally Rigged. Our Ooh. podcast title is The Case of the Podden Idol. I was going to say The Case of the Pudden Idol. <laughs> that would be Harley Quinn. The Puddin Idol. Uh, oh, you know, yes. Joker and Puddin. Oh, 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 oh. Okay. Now, I'm Rob Jan. And Megan McHugh. And April Amnesty is upon us. This year's Triple R April Amnesty Drive to subscribe blossomed mm-hmm. on Saturday with the theme Forget Me Not. So, yeah, floral tributes. We are encouraging you to subscribe or resub, as the case may be, so Triple R can proceed in all its. Floradio glory. See what I did there? Mm-hmm. Well, it's naturally nurturing way. Lots of organically grown goodies as prizes as well. You can go to the website at rrr.org.au and follow the prompts to help the station continue to grow in all of our plant pots, our flower beds, our gardens, and our agricultural biospheres shot millions of kilometres out into space. It is zero G after all. You can also call zero three nine three eight eight one zero two seven in business hours in the week. And if you've already subscribed, how about a bit of a donation at rr.org.au backslash donate. Prizes that include things of interest to zero G listeners in particular. For example, the ten day intrepid travel trip to Vietnam. Highly recommended by me. It changed my life. Well, actually, I'm still doing zero G, so that was in 2012. (laughs) Uh, You know, my newfound passion for bicycles. There's also an Avanti Giro F1 bicycle from my ride in Collingwood. There are two passes to multiple sessions of this year's MIF, Melbourne International Film Festival, a staple in zero G law for decades two book prize packs from scribe publication love the old scribe books well you know all you have to do is check it out at rr.org.au now speaking of unusual plants from outer space let's see more of little shop of horrors with the track grow for me Originally a Roger Corman lower-than-low-budget horror film from the 1960s, adapted into a musical in 1982, which was itself grafted to a Frank Oz-directed movie in 1986 from whose soundtrack. This track is Transplanted. So all of you people out there who have subscribed or wish to subscribe or renew, go out there and grow for us at Triple R. Hi, I'm Lindsay Morgan. And I'm Reg Morgan. Uh, No, we're actually Colin and Cameron Cairns. Writers, directors of 100 Bloody Acres, and you're listening to Zero G. They're not psycho killers. They're just community radio broadcasters. Is that right? (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> Acres of Blood there with Little Shop of Horrors from the 1986 Frank Oz-directed movie that takes its soundtrack largely from the LSOH comedy rock musical, music by Alan Menken and a book by Howard Ashman. I love the how they call it a book by, you know. Alan, <laughs> Alan Menken, you know him well, Beauty and the Beast and mm. Little Mermaid. Yeah, classic. And all those things. All right, so we're going out to sea now to see a show <laughs> called The Rig, a television show mm. which is on uh, Amazon Prime. And, look, there's a subgenre there. Again, you see what I did there? <laughs> <laughs> Looking at the machines that go ping out in the ocean. Uh, this is a genre that has a lot of attraction for me and I've seen a lot of movies of with science fiction and fantasy movies, not so many fantasy. Oh, and incidentally, this series, The Rig, has been billed as a fantasy series, but it's not. It's definitely science fiction. Mm. But, you know, there's movies like uh, the 2011 Sector 7, directed by Kim Ji-hoon, South Korean science fiction film. I rather like that one. Uh, mm. There's another one not to be mistaken with this television series called The Rig from 2010, directed by Peter Atencio. And a lot of these have got monsters being drilled up from the deeps. The Thing mm-hmm. Below in 2004, Proteus in 95, Atlantic Rim. Oh, that's got a lovely poster on that. <laughs> Monsters versus machines. So there's like robots Ooh. in there too. And, you know, uh, there's so many of these ones. You can go on forever. Uh, the, the Abyss, probably the classic. People forget that that was actually an oil exploration station in that one. Oh. And not just another venue for Michael Bean to sweat in. <laughs> and that's, of course, James Cameron. I think that's a great film and much um, underrated in many ways. And, of course, this has been a staple also on a smaller scale for science fiction <laughs> television series. Probably most notable, I'd say, for Doctor Who. Uh, right. There's one called The Power of Kroll from the 16th season, so we're talking Tom Baker's era as the Doctor, and that's set on a, a far-off human colony world called Delta Magna, and they've got a methane-catalyzing refinery. And Kroll is this giant octopus, basically. Oh. Oh, lots of stuff. Lots of terror there. But also one called The Terror of the Zygons from the 13th season. Again, Tom Baker as Doctor Who. And this is a classic one from the 1970s where they've got these uh, Scottish oil rigs in the North Sea off of Scotland. And, Mm -hmm. you know, there's a a monster. In fact, it is the Loch Ness monster going out and destroying the rigs. Nessie herself. Yeah, destroying the rigs. Great story, that one. So well told. In fact, there's a whole bunch of uh, Tom Baker-era stories in the 1970s that are just classics of the Doctor Who format. But this is The Rig, and it is, again, set off the coast of Scotland in the North Sea. It's an oil rig called Kinloch Bravo. Okay. And not very far from Kinloch Bravo. In fact, within sight is Kinloch Charlie. So there's a whole field of these rigs. Now, it's uh, not long before we see things begin to go wrong in this. Like there's a tracking shot from the seafloor up into the rig and, you know, we get to meet the characters on board, more of those in a moment, but we see a crevice on the seafloor opening up. Oh, God. Okay. (laughs) And I know as a science fiction fan that there is a 
an obvious problem to be seen in this place because one of the characters is reading a copy of John Wyndham's classic science fiction book, The Kraken Wakes. I see, with the little <laughs> breadcrumbs here. Okay, yeah. all right. It's, it's very prominent. He's like holding it in front of his face. It's left on a counter and people see, you know. I see. That's the show giving us a little wink, right? Yeah. Now, you, you may not have read that, but it's one of Wyndham's classic science fiction stories. This is a guy who wrote The Day of the Triffids, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, very <laughs> British catastrophes and the Kraken wakes. As you can imagine, involves a creature creatures from the deeps basically mm. so if, if you've read that you're looking at it and they're going oh, i know what's going to happen here and you wouldn't be all yep. that far wrong and the funniest thing is there's a fog that rolls in so we're in sort of john Carpenter some of my character. favorite tropes a fog yep. a deep sea creature and you know the hilarious thing about 21st century catastrophes and apocalypses. I think we've been over this before, but I, I, I used to say that one of the the basic tropes in well, the 20th century was that you'd see cars being pulled by horses. Yeah. And then it was like the telephones don't work. Ah. And now in this one they lose their internet connection. <laughs> so. <laughs> Oh, God. All those selfie photos they're taking of the fog rolling, not going to work at all. You can do nothing with them. There's no no TikTok, no Instagram, nothing to upload any of these things to. <laughs> I think that's a classic there. Okay, the rig is uh, now how many episodes is it? I think it's about six. And it's directed, uh, created by John Strickland, who is the creative behind. I almost said this straight because it would sound like he was part of a plot or something. The Murder of Princess Diana production. (laughs) Uh, He's also done a lot of um, police procedural stuff, Magray, The Bill, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that kind of thing, Hustle um, and Line of Duty. And uh, he also worked on the American series Big Love, which is a strange sort of an aside, but I think probably most relevant for me is he did work on the TV movie a for Andromeda, which is a classic British science fiction story uh, revisited in this later television movie. He also worked on the Ghosts anthology series. All right, so we've got this Scottish oil rig in the North Sea and we're into that trope territory. Mm. Uh, we've got um, spores. Spores. Oh. Isn't that a lovely? Uh, Sporran spores, I suppose, <laughs> appearing off the coast. And they're in this fog and they can cause the crew members of the rig, who are all sort of, you know, hardcore um, grease jockeys and uh, drill drillmen, you know, the whole <laughs> thing. But it is, of course. Yeah, but they're on an oil rig. They're on an oil rig. And it's that whole fly in, fly out sort of thing. You know, you, yes. you're on for a tour a couple of months or however many weeks it is and then you go home. Mm. And they're reaching the end of a, a shift transition. So everyone's a bit wound up Fancy. and they want to go home. Yeah, and of course, yep. they've been isolated for a period of time and driving each other a bit mad. Yeah, so we're already a bit over the edge here. Yeah, when it's found that these spores cause behavioural changes, as they say. All right, bad. we've been in this territory before. This is sounding like some familiar tropes. Absolutely familiar. This is the crux of the main problem with the show. Actually, mm. um, they do open up a lot of tropes in here. And none more tropical than in the characters, because everybody's oh, got no. yeah, everybody's got an issue. 
Yeah. Oh, gosh. You know. The dark past, the backstory, the tragic family history or something. I'm willing to go along that to, with that for a certain extent, you know, mm. um, because it's characterization. Often, I don't know, as I, as I get older, I sort of say, get on with it. well i think especially if the situations are very tropey and we've seen them before characters is one area where you can make it new and fresh and so if even their characters we've seen before then what are we here for i would like to have seen it done a bit more with a bit more nuance that they could actually Mm. like maybe the uh the mysterious unknown force behind all of this if if it was actually mining the people's uh you know dark pasts yeah. As a communication yeah. aid, or if it was bubble. Sure. It's not really made clear that there might be a connection to that. And I just thought of that, actually. That would have been a good idea. Anyway, so let's have a look at some of the characters in this. Uh, Emily Hampshire plays Rose Mason. Now, she represents the oil company. So she's just come on hmm. board. She's a, a techie, you know, the uh, the back room sort of boffin the face of the company, all that sort of stuff. So sure. naturally she's not going to be trusted by anyone on this rig. <laughs> yes, so she's hardly been welcomed by open arms, I can imagine. No, and actually in, in the real world it's probably everyone would really scuttle around to look after her and be nice to her, you know, because she's the company. <laughs> but, yeah. You know, not on this rig, not on the Kinlock B. <laughs> We've seen her before in the sci-fi dramas series 12 monkeys uh i've not seen her in this show but it's very popular popular uh schitt's creek now i've not seen oh it, yes what's her character in that uh stevie bud okay hmm. she's been in the Chapelwaite series still in that and she was in david cronenberg's cosmopolis and also oh. in um uh mother which was uh darren Aronofsky's psycho horror film from 2017. Yes, right, right, right. Another person on The Rig is Martin Compton, who plays former Hamilton, and he's a comms officer and uh, an IT guy and all that sort of, you know, anything that doesn't require lots of grease on it, he can Mm. operate on it in that sort of, so he's a mechanic in, in some respects. Now, we know him. We've seen him before. He was Chief Petty Officer Craig Burke who was the sonar man aboard the HMS Vigil. Ah, yes, Vigil. Yeah. We know he was found fairly found dead fairly quickly in that show because it was a, <laughs> a, an underwater tele, uh, police procedural show. Um, so yeah. yeah, you'll know him immediately if you've watched Vigil. So here he is again yeah. in trouble at sea. <laughs> Although nice. I promise you he does not die immediately, at least in this, or perhaps not at all. I'm not going to give that away. <laughs> he's, he's in there for a little bit longer than the first episode, shall I say. Okay, good, good for him. He's got a longer contract this time around. Now, a name that you will have heard before is Ian Glenn playing Magnus McMillan, who's the offshore installation manager at the rig. Okay. Uh, Scottish actor. We have seen him before in Game of Thrones playing yes. Sir Jorah Mormont. He's, got a, he's uh-huh. got a great face for this sort of thing. Uh, here, mm. here he's a little bit um, troubled. He's got a, he's one of the guys with a past, and okay. it makes him less effective as the leader of the group, which I actually found quite refreshing in his case because you know he's more in the position of I would have thought uh, the guy who who you would expect to look to for leadership. Uh, remember in the, in the John Carpenter's The Thing, uh, Commander Gary, who is in charge of the base, it's not really the guy who you look to for 
getting them through the situation. Although, but Magnus mm. has this interesting kind of story arc. So actually, we'll pay his character in this. We've seen him before in uh, Tomb Raider and also in Eye in the Sky, and he plays Bruce Wayne in the Titans series too, which oh. is really odd. But you know, there interesting. He is. He's also been in the uh, Free of the Resident Evil film series, playing a dodgy doctor. <laughs> so I actually liked his role. Look, there is nothing wrong with the acting in this show. They're, they're all uh, high-quality actors, and they deliver what they have as convincingly okay. as they can. It's just a little bit over the top, you know, when you, as I was saying, there's too many things in their background. Uh, Owen Teal plays Lars Hutton. Um, he's a Welsh character actor. He's been in Robin Hood in 1991. That Arthurian Romano film, The Last Legion in 2007, which we reviewed. Gosh, we've re- reviewed a lot of these. King Arthur in 2004. He has, of course, be- appeared in Doctor Who as as every British actor. In- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we also know him from Game of Thrones as another knight, uh, Sir Alistair Thorne. Oh. So, yeah. No, of course... He's the most experienced of the oil rig men, uh, mm-hmm. the most hard-bitten, the most crusty, and, of course, he clashes with everyone else to a ludicrous extent. Right, where it gets a bit old after a time. It does. It does indeed. It's like, why isn't this the first person to fall off the oil rig into the ocean? <laughs> you know, you'll also see... Um, uh, Roshenda Sandal playing Cat, uh, not a wild catter, but Cat. And we've seen her in Black Mirror Bandersnatch and in Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker. And of course, Doctor Who as well. She's been in that too. So, you know, there's a whole bunch of people in here because it's a large oil rig crew. And there are a lot of characters in play, and that may be a difficulty. Um, we've got Stuart Macquarie, uh, who we've seen before in Train Spotting and 28 Days Later. Mark Addy from the fantasy drama series Atlantis from 2013. Um, you know, he was also in Doctor Who, so I, I actually am going to stop saying that now because they've all been in before. <laughs> you know, so. We'll say if they weren't in Doctor Who. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know, I, when I interviewed uh, Sir Derek Jacobi once before he played the master in Doctor Who, and I said, you must be the only major British actor who's never been in Doctor Who, and he said, ah, <laughs> so I think he might have known at the time. I don't know. Anyway, let's hear the main titles from the rig. And this is by, and this is a great name for an artist or a band or whatever, Blunk Mass. And it's the rig from the Prime Video original series soundtrack. Hi, this is Fraser Hines. Welcome aboard the Starship Zero G. Look at the size of that thing, Doctor. Yeah, yes, Jamie, that is a big one. Yeah, The Rig, the main title mm-hmm. from the Prime Video Series, and it's by Blanc Mass. It's a great name. British Electronic Solo Project by mm-hmm. Benjamin J. Power. It's done quite a few bits and pieces around, but you can tell it's like electronic music, sort of electro-industrial, all those other buzzwords, and it's entirely appropriate for The Rig, which, of course, is in question in this film it's a television series. It's easy to get it confused with some of the very many oil rig science fiction films out there, but it's its own thing, and it's a six-episode television series, uh, as I said, on Prime. Now, we've had a look at a brief look at the characters. They all interact in their ways, you know, whether it be heroic or cowardly or mm-hmm. confusedly. You know, they've all got their things, like there's um, um, the ship's... 
the um, the medic on board the oil rig is she's in a lesbian relationship and she's having a baby. Um, so you know, there's there's implications of that because she hasn't declared that when she boarded the rig. Um, you know, right. so okay, and the management would frown upon that. There is a fairly quite adept attempt to portray the relationships between the company and the oil workers. But at the same time, I feel like it is a fairly standard, nobody trusts the company sort of, and nor should they really because you can't trust them in this case. You know that you can't. There is a strong environmental through line in this. It's surprising how many people on this oil rig are environmentalists and yet they're still working there. Mm. But you know what? That is the way it actually is in real life. You know, a job is a job in some respects, and you can have yeah. you can have opinions about your employer that that do not match the KPIs and the mission statement of the company. That's well known, <laughs> though. Of course, once they bring in those thought control helmets, hmm. <laughs> sorry, I wandered off there because I, I was listening to uh, a podcast about that very thing today. Anyway, so the idea of having King Kinlock Charlie nearby means that mm-hmm. you have an easy visual reference for awful things that can happen to that before they happen to the Kinlock B. So that's a good trope. I see. Right. So the equivalent of we're out at sea and we see another ship on the horizon and then all of a sudden it gets swallowed in a black hole or something and we're like, oh, God, that's going to be our fate. Yeah. It's sort of a similar thing. Yeah. I did credit this production for introducing me to the fascinating story of the uh, Doggerland, which is um, – an area of submerged land from the the days when parts of uh, when Britain was actually part of the continent, and also mm-hmm. um, the Storega Slide, which is a fascinating thing to read about too, an underwater mm. earthquake in um, oh, not exactly prehistory, but uh, way back when. There are some good bits in this. Um, in terms of horror, uh, I thought a very effective way of manifesting the spores taking over people. And they're not, don't worry, it's not too much like uh, fungi infecting you or anything like that. (laughs) Very much on our mind lately, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Look, some of the procedure is quite good, but for the oil rig, and the oil rig is really well done. Look, if this were a Doctor Mm -hmm. Who story back in the day, we'd have some uh, some rather well done models, but shot against some dodgy chroma key backdrops and that sort of thing. (laughs) Uh, You know, this, this is the... CGI on the rig and the set, because I actually built a very large set for this as well, uh, spot on, and it feels like the place. There's a mm. good sense of place. I know where the spider deck is, um, and it's not a place where they keep spiders, although you never know, uh, and the, the helipad and the rec room and the bridge. You know, all of that's all, all the command centre, I should say. It's not a ship. Um, and the the lifeboats, it's all very, very well thought out in your head but and it should be because this is an easy one to uh, put together in terms of that because there's lots of there's nothing invented in the in the rig really yeah yeah Yeah. so it does come to a a massive conclusion an effective one i thought don't get out of your survival suits yet because Mm -hmm. there's a second season ah okay so okay they've left that door open interesting they have they have and I thought this is a great idea. Mm. In part, it's well executed. I thought the relationships part was a bit too Mm. over the top, and those tropes do weigh the show down a bit. Right. So in terms of a zero-G rating of a, yeah, 
nah, maybe. I'm in a, a yeah, maybe zone. So I watched it all the way through. It kept me going. I was compelled yeah. to watch it. I was a little that says something. disappointed in the way it rolled out. Um, and the creature force, whatever it is, I thought, mm. I thought they did quite well in depicting it and in terms of um, putting it together and, and a kind of a motivation and all that sort of stuff, that worked. So that science fiction angle I thought worked. Yeah, right. I'm curious about what the tone is. Like is it a, you know, a heavy drama with thriller elements? Is it like once things kick off like more of a horror thriller action or is it, you know, more of a slow burn? You know, I, I'm curious because you've said a lot about the character backstories. Like how much is the the human drama and how much is the science fiction slash supernatural terror portion? Like what is it? What would you classify it as mostly in terms of genre? Well, it's actually half and half, but I would also okay. call it a psychodrama. You know how they do that? So Interesting. So the, okay. the, the pressure is on, on the people because of the situation. So yeah. there is that. It's not as good a psychodrama as Carpenter's The Thing. Yeah. But Interesting. it's not, not too far off of that in, in many respects. So, you know, it is worth a look at. And, you know, if you're fans of Vigil and you want to go underwater again, <laughs> well, you're probably going to be a little bit disappointed because it's set on an oil rig. <laughs> so, I think similar, though, isolated setting. Yeah contained environment, that kind of thing. I'll give them full marks for this. For the entire six episodes, they mm. keep the galley open, the kitchen running, even though oh. even though they're running out of food. Um, right, okay. They still keep the kitchen running, and I thought that that deserved uh, several gold stars for the, sh- for the resourceful chef. <laughs> so, it's called The Rig. It's on Amazon Prime, and I did enjoy it. I had to watch the whole thing, you know, even though you, you're going, oh, maybe I'm not on board, so to speak, with parts of this, but I watched mm. it all. Okay. Mm. Well, it'll keep us going until I did see that Vigil is getting a second season, speaking of that show. So it will be set at a murder mystery at the Air Force this time, though, so headed to a different oh, location. I was going to say, you know, if the if HMS Vigil docked with the rig. <laughs> <laughs> the crossover that no one was knew they wanted. <laughs> Oh, I'm expecting them to all end up on the Lost Island. I hope they enjoy. Yeah. I hope they enjoy uh, fish fish biscuits and so. <laughs> all right. So, as a track, not to riff off that, but more to lead into what Megan is going to talk about, uh, mm-hmm. because gold features heavily in that. Uh, we'll have David Bowie's Golden Years. This particular one, I think, comes from the Station to Station album, but in this case, it's uh, on Changes One Bowie. Hello, me little lovelies. This is your old fat auntie Jack on Radio Free Triple R. You're listening to Zero G, and if you don't listen to it closely, I'm going to jump through your speakers and rip your bloody arms off. And I will too. Bit of disco funk there with Bowie's Golden Years from the Station to Station album 1976. I think he was um, uh, working on the Man Who Fell to Earth film back around about then. Two, so very science fiction in its respects. Nothing at all to do with the rig that we we're talking about, although the wop, wop, wop might be the helicopters flying into the rig. <laughs> <laughs> all right, but the gold definitely refers to something we are going to talk about now. 
Yes, indeed. I'm going to talk about the video game, The Case of the Golden Idol. But before I dig into that, just another quick reminder that, of course, it is April Amnesty now. This is another big subscription drive that we do here at Triple R, as well as Radiothon, which is later in the year. Just another reminder, because this year's theme is Forget Me Not, that the station does run on things like listener subscriptions, donations, and support. And just to keep us going as a community station, um, and if you intended to subscribe or donate, and you've forgotten, it's a, just another nice reminder that you can head to rrr.org.au forward slash donate or forward slash subscribe. And we appreciate uh, anything that you can give. All right. So into the game. I am a big fan, obviously, of all things murder mystery detective. Rob's starting to get a little <laughs> bit worried at this point because everything involves some kind of slasher film, final girl trope, or like, you know, surly detective. <laughs> Megan is our resident Fletcher. <laughs> um, so, yes, I've, I've spent many a year worrying Rob with all of my review choices, but I really wanted to cover this um, game, which is something that I've had my eye on for a while. So it is called The Case of the Golden Idol. It's a little independent game title, but it has been getting quite a bit of buzz and fanfare because it's a bit of a favourite critically and with audiences as well. I think it's also quite accessible too. So it might be nice if you like the sound of it, but you're not big on gaming, but it's a nice thing to dabble in if you do think it sounds appealing. It is a point-and-click detective puzzle game. It's a single player. It is only available on PC and Mac, so you can download it on Steam. You'll have to play it on your computer. It's not available on any consoles or anything like that. It came out towards the end of last year, and there is a playable demo available, which is a very smart move because it's actually from a smaller uh, Latvian development studio called Color Grey Games. It's two developers called Ernest's and Andridge's, I'm so sorry about the pronunciation, Clavins. So I'm assuming they're brothers or related in some way, but they have created this game and they are the founders of that Color Grey Games studio which was first created in 2021, and this is their first commercial game that they've released. They kind of got together and thought, let's make a go of this, start making the kind of games we want and just see how it goes. So the demo is available so people can try and, you know, see what they're about because they're trying to raise their profile, that kind of thing. So the demo you can play for free. It is available only on PC, though, so I'll just flag that. It was nominated for the BAFTA Games Award for Debut Game for this year, 2023. I definitely think it's a strong contender because it's also got a pretty clear vision and very interesting gameplay, which I'll talk a little bit more about in a minute. Um, it is inspired by a game called The Return of Obra Dinn that comes up a lot in people's reviews and when they discuss the game and they sort of say, well, if you like this, you'll probably like the Obra Dinn game. I've not played that myself. They're probably a bit of a spiritual pair um, and Obra Dinn, from what I can gather, is a similar kind of detective game with a very strong sense of place and setting. Uh, the style for Case of the Golden Idol is a pixel animation kind of style, very simple, very nostalgic, very reminiscent of the kind of 90s point-and-click games that you might play on the computer. I definitely played a lot of Hugo's House of Horrors and games like that when I was younger, and so it's very much done in that kind of style. And it was inspired by the art of Gustav Dore and William Hogarth. So that's kind of the vibe we've got going. It's a bit frustrating because I feel like you get a very strong sense of 
the game's energy by seeing what it looks like. It's obviously quite hard for me to describe, but it's got a very distinct style, which I think works really well with the concept of how the game is played. But I think for lack of not being able to get you visual images through this here radio (laughs) waves, I think we'll listen to something from the soundtrack and that'll hopefully give us a little bit of the mood before I talk about how to play the game and a little bit more about it. So this is from the soundtrack for the game. And this one we're going to listen to is called the the Watching Eye. Now, the score is composed by a Ukrainian composer called Kyle Misko. It's his very first game score that he's ever released. Let's listen to the Watching Eye from the game The Case of the Golden Idol. Zero G is fun, as you were. That was The Watching Eye, and that's from the score to the game The Case of the Golden Idol by Ukrainian composer Kyle Misko. So I'll tell you a little bit more about the game and the style and what kind of experience it is, but I did pull this from their sort of official marketing material, and I think it's just the one-liner for what this game is really pitches it very well. Step into the shoes of an 18th century detective and uncover the mystery behind 12 strange deaths spanning 40 years, all somehow connected. Ah. So there is an interlinked story, but you work through the story um, with each chapter and each chapter is one murder. So it is uh, sort of presented to you as a tableau that you can explore, figure out clues for, and then put together a solution. So the actual mechanics is quite simple in that there's not a lot of interaction, movement, characters don't speak, that kind of thing. It's all very static and you interact with key points in the scene um, and gather different clues and evidence. So it is, you know, that point and click style, but it's actually quite cleverly done in terms of the narrative because, as I mentioned, it's it's all building upon each previous case. So it's not sort of... 12 unrelated deaths, you know, John in the garden, Margaret, you know, died behind the pub. It's actually follows this interlinked story. And as you put together kind of the overarching mystery of the case of the golden idol, basically I played through the demo just to give it a bit of a try and see what it was like. And that's actually a fairly hefty portion of the game. I was able to play the first four chapters. Um, So it's a decent amount of content to trial for free. Mm -hmm. What I will say too, of course, though, is I, of course, was very smug after the first couple of cases. I was like, oh, these are so easy. I'm going to whip through this. Look how smart I am. All of that murder she wrote watching is paying off. And then, of course, it did get much more difficult. And I was sitting there just scratching my head, really trying to think, how do I solve it? So that was actually, I liked that the difficulty ramped up. It it lulled you into a false sense of security at the start. (laughs) So, yeah, so you head into the chapter and you're presented with a static, ste- a static scene of kind of just post a death or mid-death in some cases. And what you need to do is inside that scene, there's all the information you need to deduce the solution to what happened. Mm. So that includes if you click on, say, a satchel that someone's holding in the scene, um, a pop-up will show you what's inside the satchel and it might be like a little bit of money, a note with some key details on it, that kind of thing. The interesting mechanic that I don't think I've seen before is 
what you have to do with these clues and evidence is there'll be like these highlighted keywords that you kind of collect into a little pouch of words. So you'll have this list of words at the bottom of the screen and they can be names, um, items, adjectives. And what happens is there's two modes. So when you're in exploring mode, you're looking at this static scene and you're kind of clicking on the different portions, gathering the clues, and then you can flip it to thinking mode where it opens up these three panels. And so one panel contains the culprit, what happened, who the victim was, what all of that, and there's gaps. So you have to use the words you've gathered from your clue clicking around and place those words inside the gaps. So it'll be something like blah, snuck into blah via blah, and stabbed blah with blah. And you have to replace the blahs with the little words you've picked up through exploring the scene that you've been looking at. We're in Cluedo territory. Yes, absolutely. So it's very much about using the information and then deducing exactly what happened where. And there'll be little things that are meant to trick you or send you down the wrong thinking path. And you have to like dial it back and go, oh, okay, that doesn't work. So when you put in these words, if you get them all correct, it will say, oh, okay, you've got that panel right. So the left panel is your, you know, solution. And the other two panels, um, they change per chapter and they'll just be little things that will help you figure out and organize your clues. So it might be a series of faces of people in the scene and you have to identify them with their names. Um, It might be, you know, there's a torn up note and you have to piece together what the note was saying. So you'll have all the critical clues you need to help fill this out, but you just have to do a bit of thinking in order to do it correctly. Um, And then of course, the key part of passing the chapter is getting that culprit motive part, the very far left panel correct, all all clues filled in right. So yeah, it's a little tricky to explain, but the mechanics of doing it is actually quite simple. But what I enjoyed was the fact that, like I said before, it did make me think. So sometimes the scenes are just one frame and then other times you can kind of click through and you'll see another whole scene. So it might be like two scenes that you can gather clues from. There's a mode where you can have marker icons that show you what you can click on and interact with. There's also a mode where you can turn that off. So you actually just have to click around the whole scene. Um, I did not use that mode because that just seemed more frustrating than fun to me, unfortunately. (laughs) I think as well what I, the whole time you're in full control. So you're really just given this kind of thing to figure out. So it's very much a puzzle game in that way you know that everything you need is in that in that scene yeah. um, and so it's really just up to you. So I kind of like that. There was a really, a really nice sense of completion to each phase. Um, along the way, you unco- uncover a broader narrative. So as you kind of piece together the connections between each murder, um, you realise that there's a pattern, there's something ongoing here, there's ah. each thing actually links to the previous and, and so on and so forth. And it does seem to be largely surrounding this one particular family, uh, an aristocratic family, of course, as I said before, we're in the 1700s. And so the style really plays with that idea of, oh, we're in this mansion or we're, you know, we're in aristocratic territory and it kind of digs into maybe 
uh, a curse that's been surrounding them for generations or whatever. So, and also, of course, the uh, golden idol of the title does make several recurring appearances. And so you start to figure out, okay, well, I want to keep going and keep solving and find out exactly what the broader picture is by just systematically going through each chapter, solving each little piece. And I feel like there's a sense of calm in that. It's a very clear, (laughs) I knew what was expected of me and that was kind of nice (laughs) in a world of chaos. So this is a, we call this a beta version sort of thing or a demo. Yeah. So, I mean, the game is available now though. So it was released in full. So you are able to play all of the chapters. So I think there's 11 chapters you can purchase that whole thing and play it all the way through. But the demo is a nice way to have a dabble. I would say too that, yeah, if you've liked point and click detectives stories in the past, you'll like this. It does have the extra element of the puzzle, which is a little bit of trial and error sometimes. Like you could probably brute force it. It would take a while, but you could probably brute force it, but you wouldn't get the sense of satisfaction, which I think is what the game really has going for it. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, because the difficulty got harder, also my sense of accomplishment became greater with each sort of puzzle. So it did take longer for the last one that I solved. And when I finally cracked it, it felt great. So I think that way of engaging with the player um and also but having that overarching narrative to kind of link everything together is what makes it quite special because you could easily do a bunch of generic puzzles in this style, but I think it's the the fact that it's building up a story with this very simple premise, um, like, oh, fill in the words, but actually um, if you think about what the content is, it's a much richer story and also the strong sense of style. Like I said before, that pixel animation style, the art style is quite unique uh, and it feels kind of, yeah, this ye oldie retro mishmash, which I really responded to. It, it sounds like a, a very up, uprated version of um, the Blackwood and Bell Mysteries. That was an online game. Uh, same sort of thing. You'd have a scene, a murder scene, and you have all the clues there, but that yep. more relied upon your ability to spot items in it. was very basic. But that had, oh, yes. But that had, because this is the way these games work, that had a, a base building component where you built your own sort of lair and that out of oh. treasure that you'd gotten from each of the past. Does that have anything like this? No. So I think that's the thing about it is it's quite pared back. Yeah. So from what I can Good tell, actually. it literally is, yeah, and I think, that simplicity of vision mixed with just the flair of execution has actually just come off so well. And for me, it's the same, you know, when you crack a crossword puzzle, the final piece of a jigsaw puzzle, that's what I'm getting from each chapter here. It didn't overcomplicate it. And I think it would have maybe overcomplicated it to add in too many mechanics. So I did respect its simplicity. Um, Yeah. Sparse, but intentional, I think is, is really how it went about things. I I definitely would recommend this. I think it's I'm keen to I'm very keen to um finish it. I think it's playful and clever. Uh I think it is a genuinely engaging way to pass time. I can see it's probably going to be a short experience, but I think memorable. Like I said, the aesthetic well, hopefully short. God knows. I could be there for hours just trying to solve these puzzles. I'll report back on that. Um and I also do respect it's their first game love supporting a smaller studio 
and I want to see more games like this. So I think it's roughly $25 on Steam, but I do see, I've seen it go on sale at least twice. Uh, so, you know, I think, uh, you'd be able to get it for less than that if you just keep your eyes peeled. Uh, that is the case of the Golden Idol available on Steam for PC and Mac. Thumbs up from me. It's a yeah. Hmm. Awesome. Another detective digital. Oh, is it, uh, there's another question I had, a quick question, which was, does it have, um, uh, an online component like multiplayer online or anything like that yeah single player i because i was like oh it could be cool to do this with friends or if but you know you could broaden the experience but for now yeah it's it's very much solo okay well that's about it for zero g for today remember you are in april amnesty and you know amongst the many many reasons for subscribing or resubscribing or donating all of the above to triple r is the fact that We are an independent radio station. Nobody's telling us how to do our playlists. (laughs) Obviously, in Zero G's case. (laughs) We abuse the power. We'll admit it. Although, obviously, there's also a mad god behind Zero G somewhere, obviously an elder being. And in this case, it's an alien space plant tying into the April Amnesty's forget-me-not theme. Seymour from Little Shop of Horrors, the movie and the motion picture soundtrack album. And this is called Feed Me. So get to it yourselves. That's it for Zero G for today. Thank you, Megan. Thank you, Rob. Thank you to Alice Savage, our podcaster, and Joe Brunetic coming up next with Astral Glamour. G'day, this is Rob Jan. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website.